News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, sure, there's the actual football game, but isn't the Super Bowl about much more than that? Coming as it does, you know, right at the end of January, beginning of February, you kind of feel like people need something, right? Some kind of outlet post-Christmas before spring arrives to have some fun, be entertained. Well, the game itself was a bit of a letdown yesterday. I thought it was pretty dull, but there was all sorts of other stuff to watch. There was the weekend's halftime show. There were commercials. Although here in Canada, of course, we had to go online to watch the really good ones. But let's talk about all the highlights and pop culture moments from it. Joining us now is Eric Alper, music publicist, pop culture commentator. Good morning, Eric. Good morning. There was a football game on last night? Exactly my thoughts. weekend concerts. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? The weekend concert, I thought, was pretty good. How about you? Yeah, you know, he was smooth. His transition in less than a decade from, you know, complete unknown artist in Scarborough, Ontario, just uh, a little bit north of, of Toronto, uh, to absolute global superstar is going to be one for the ages, I think, that people and artists are going to look at decades from now to say, that's what kind of, of a career I want. It used to be, I want a career like Michael Jackson, and then we kind of all know how that ended. But with with yes. The weekend, I think he's just done everything correctly, and that kind of culminated into you know, performing at the Super Bowl halftime show. Yeah, it was one of those things where I thought, oh, okay, like I know a couple weekend songs I'll watch this. But then as he played, I thought, oh, I know that one. Oh, I know that one too. Oh, I know that one. Then you realize he has so many hits that you don't even realize. And you're not alone in that. Like that's the thing about about music and entertainment and pop culture is that right now, seven of the top eight songs on iTunes are the weekend songs leading with Blinding Lights at number one. It's like the, you know, the, the 19th time he's hit number one um, on the iTunes chart. But all of those sales and all these streams are fairly new people who are introduced to artists. So that's why I never take for granted that, well, just because you may know Lady Gaga and I know me and I may know Maroon 5. There are people out there that yeah. are hearing these songs for the first time. The other thing I found interesting about his show is that usually with the halftime show, it gets pretty stuffed, right? Lots of people showing up, lots of celebrities show up for like one song or, you know, join in. There was nothing. It was just him performing. Yeah, he announced the fact that he was going to do this solo, which was the first time that anybody has actually done the Super Bowl halftime show by themselves since Lady Gaga back in 2017. And it was a statement. It was almost like, I don't need anybody else to do it. And it's not an egotistical thing. It's just like, if you followed his videos and why he wears the bandages on his face and on various parts of his body, there's an actual storyline and a theme if you dig deep and Try not to make your eyes roll to the back of your head about, you know, what <laughs> it actually all means. But he, they, they probably thought, and in, in The weekend and his team probably thought that, you know, having this special guest would take it away from the momentum right. that The weekend is having. So it's a, it's a great thing to put the spotlight all on one person again. You're so right about the bandages, because I had that question from my husband. What's with the bandages? What's that all about? And I said to him, you know what, just look it up. That's what Google's in front of me for. <laughs> I said, I don't want to explain it to you. That's what the internet is for. Yeah. And really quickly, it, it's his statement on celebrity plastic surgery. But this whole storyline starts off with a guy who is a weekend going to a club, gets a little bit weird, 
goes out and is alone and ends up with a whole bunch of characters that he sees. And if you watch all of the videos that he's released for for the album, for the latest record, it kind of follows a loose storyline. But that's his statement on Hollywood plastic surgery and what we all think beauty really is. Yeah, I mean, there, it was for that part of it, you're like, oh, okay, this is what the Super Bowl was supposed to be. But the rest of it clearly didn't feel that way. They they were kind of social distancing in the stadium, although I didn't really see as much as they were supposed to. But then outside the stadium, it looked nutty. Yeah, it, it's, it's still weird to look at a sports game with nobody in it or you know look there were 25,000 people inside and I think something like 8,000 of them were uh, frontline workers from the health industry and hospitals that were flown in for the game as a way to say thank you and as a reward for for putting up with all of this Um, but yeah it's weird when you don't have people on the field too like fans because we've seen that with Prince and with Bruce Springsteen and Maroon 5 where they get the audience involved with it but there was none of that it was like one long 17 minute music video yeah it certainly seemed that way too now did you get a chance to watch any of the commercials Eric yeah I did I saw the Wayne's World one with uh, Cardi B oh yeah um, and that was good Drake appeared in a State Farm uh, commercial yeah yeah and so you know Wow, how fun is it to be a Canadian during last weekend where, you know, Dan Levy hosted Saturday Night Live. You had the weekend, you had Drake and and Mike Myers all over the TV. It was great. Yeah, you're right. I forgot about that. I watched Dan Levy, too. I hadn't put it all together there. Also interesting to note that Bruce Springsteen did a commercial for Jeep last night, and he, he didn't even say yes to it until just after the new year. They only filmed it. Last weekend, what would make Bruce Springsteen, after all these years, decide to do a commercial? It's it's probably a cross between seven zeros on that check and eight <laughs> zeros on that check. But I think primarily, though, it was really all about the election and making sure that that America was going to be a little bit more smoother. It wasn't going to be chaotic. Um, it, it very much was, you know, even though that it's a car commercial, it's still a little bit of a of a political statement for for Bruce, whatever he does. But this was the very first commercial that he ever did and uh, um, was pretty amazing um, because when Bruce Springsteen wants to put his name on something, you know that he means it. That is so true. That's what he's, I guess, saved that all up for, right? For his credibility. Uh, Did you have a favorite? What about the Edgar Scissorhands? I thought maybe that one you liked. Yeah, I thought that one was was great too. You know, I look, I'm such a, I'm such a Wayne's World dude. Like I grew oh, up, okay. I grew up in the basement of people's houses, you know, where <laughs> right. where people wanted to have a cable television show, and that was their dream. Forget about being a media, much music. So I, I thought that bringing Cardi B on, you know, was was a real big coup for the for the company, and also just for the concept of of being Canadian. So I, I kind of dug that one a lot. I like that. All right, Eric. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Thanks so much for having me. We'll talk soon. Yep. Eric Albert, music publicist, pop culture commentator, talking about all the other stuff that went on at the Super Bowl yesterday because the game itself was uh, pretty boring. You know, I I tuned in. I don't even watch football. But you know what? In this day and age, when you're looking for some entertainment, I thought, I'll watch this. 
Of course, I'll enjoy any anything that's like involving around food. So having some snacks, watching the game, and I realized this is a really boring game. And I think a lot of other people probably felt the same way. I'll be really interested to see what the ratings are later today for that. But there were lots of other things to enjoy about that. Did you watch it? Did you just forget about it this year because of everything else that's going on? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. All right, heads up on a couple of things. One, it is cold outside, so you'll need a warmer jacket than you've been wearing the last couple of weeks. We're actually going to talk to Mark Madriga about this cold snap we're getting this week. That is coming up, oh, in about an hour's time or so. Plus, we have a new contest to play with you. It's called Famous Families. You can win a prize to Vallea Lumina in Whistler. That is also ahead on the show this morning. But right now, I'll talk about a story that really had some numbers in it that were quite shocking. So conservation agencies decided to do a check of of the illegal traps that may have been there in the Boundary Bay area. So over the past couple of weeks, they hauled some up. How many did they actually find? About 337 illegal traps just in the Boundary Bay area alone. And they said those were recovered from a relatively small area. Our show producer, Victor Young, spoke with Art Dembski, a detachment commander with the Department of Fisheries, for more. We utilized uh, the King. Coast Guard hovercraft as, as a base of operations and as a platform uh, to haul in a bunch of illegal crab fishing here in the Boundary Bay area. So um, there were a number of officers involved from three, actually four different detachments in the lower Fraser area. And uh, we were uh, dragging for and recovering and, and hauling in and seizing illegal gear, illegal crab gear set in uh, the Boundary Bay area. Uh, normally, I would say, we, in, in, other, in other operations, we'd get around 200 so traps um, in the past, and these operations have lasted about three days. This time we, we tried five days, spread out over a two-week period. If you don't know what a ghost fishing gear is, it, it's a device or fishing apparatus, in this case a crab trap, that is set up in such a way so that uh, it doesn't open. It doesn't uh, uh, doesn't have an escape mechanism that allows fish or crab to get out. In this case, the traps we seize for the most part are all wired shut or strapped shut in such a way so that they can't pop open, so an escape mechanism can't fall out. There's no what we call rot cord, which a, com- a legitimate commercial trap is supposed to have that would now enables it to rot over time and the trap pops open. So these traps fish forever. If they get lost, they fish forever. Uh, bait goes in them one time. Uh, fish and crab go in them. Those fish and crab, if those traps aren't removed, become bait. And if those traps get lost over time, those those traps themselves um, continue to fish because they're self-baiting by whatever goes in there. So it's dangerous gear illegally set. And this really illustrates the need for more programs like this because these agencies have a lot of other initiatives that they need support to support as well. Now, there's actually a substantial role that you, the public, can play in this. So here's what you can do if you want to help out. There's a big role for the public. We can't be everywhere at once. and We can't be everywhere all the time. So we count on the public to be our eyes and ears out on the water as well. So anyone seeing anything what they deem to be illegal or out of the normal, someone maybe uh, who appears to be fishing at night when maybe that probably doesn't seem like it's kosher, 
they should be reporting to our observe, uh, record, and report line. Uh, it's the 1-800-465-4336 number. That's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That really helps us. That helps us to concentrate our efforts. Uh, we may not respond to a call immediately, uh, or we may not be able to respond at all in some cases because we're just that busy. But we will focus our efforts in areas where we get a number of calls, number of complaints, uh, a pattern that develops. So uh, th that's very helpful. So um, the general public, there are also our eyes and ears. And it's important in order to protect the natural resources, everyone has to do their part. This, this fishing activity not only is illegal activity, but it's, it's unregulated, it's unaccounted for gear, and in a lot of instances, this gear gets lost because the people who fish it aren't marking it properly with floats or buoys. See, now that's the sad part is, so it gets lost or people don't know where it is, they're not marking it because it's illegal, uh, and then it's just down there and it's wired shut and, you know, there's no escape there for um, everything that's there. So that's the sad part about this, but you can help out, actually. That was Art Dembski with the Department of Fisheries. The crab season in Boundary Bay actually ended in November. But here's the thing. If you think you're seeing it going on out there, they need you to reach out to them. If you live along Boundary Bay or you're out that way, you undoubtedly see this happening. So to call them, the number is one 800-465-4336. I mean, they can catch, they can pull up the trap, but there's no identifying features on it. They can't catch the person who put the trap there. So if you see people out on the water or heading out to do that, they need you to call them. So again, it's 1-800-465-4336. We've had a couple of cases of women who have gone missing over the last few weeks. You have undoubtedly heard those stories in the news. And then over the last few days, there seemed to be a lot of rumors just going crazy on social media about, uh, you know, rumors about a connection and how women should be careful when walking in certain neighborhoods. And it really got the attention of police. And their statement to that was, well, it's unfounded and people shouldn't listen to it. Well, that did not exactly make people feel better about all of this. It began circulating on TikTok, actually, with people saying that they were sharing firsthand stories of being followed. Uh, there were some second and third hat accounts, too, of women being pursued. So what is going on here? Well, joining us to sort through all of it is Angela McDougall, the executive director at Battered Women's Support Services here in Vancouver. Angela, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Have you been hearing these stories? I have, yes. And uh, I think that what we're seeing certainly is what we see more broadly in the culture, which is that there is a long and persistent history of not only sexualized violence in the private and the public realm, but also a level of socialization to be uh, afraid um, because of, the, of you know, to take action and to be afraid right. uh, in the context of sexualized violence. Do you think women are just being more public about sharing these stories? Like, is that what's going on here? And this is a really good thing. I mean, we've had, uh, you know, over the last maybe decade, perhaps a bit longer of a, and, and it really started, you know, uh, through social media, uh, largely with uh, hashtags uh, on Twitter and, and uh, other places where 
uh, women began to share their experiences of sexualized violence. Uh, you know, you know, Simi, as you probably know and would agree, is that we haven't really had uh, a reckoning or any major cultural a reckoning or understanding of the prevalence of sexualized yeah. violence. There isn't really places to discuss it. So social media has really uh, been a place be- in part because the narrative has been so troubling right. and, the ex- and the victim blaming has been so profound and deep. Well, let's talk about what the police had to say about this. So there's all these stories going around on social media. And meanwhile, RCMP and Coquitlam, by the way, I should say we asked them to come on and talk about this today. They were not available. But essentially, they warned the public to, quote, stop spreading unproven rumors. Uh, They've kind of walked that back a little bit now. But Angela, what was your reaction when you heard that? Well, that's a disappointment, actually. And I think it's a missed opportunity because, I mean, there are women that are missing, and that, uh, you know, and they are investigating at least one of the of the instances that have come, you know, that have been named in more recent days, uh, combined with the fact that we have uh, an egregious amount of sexualized violence that happens in the public realm, even knowing that most of it happens in the private realm. So this was a missed opportunity for the police to uh, to recognize that this is a serious social problem that clearly women, young women and girls are concerned about and are taking, you know, social media in order to share their concerns. And so this isn't the time to sort of pat, you know, women everyone on their head and say, don't worry about this, leave it up to us, we're the quote-unquote professionals, because this is a bigger problem, actually, than the police, uh, than the police can actually, you know, beyond the police, because it's a larger social problem. And the police have had their own struggles with these investigations. We have, of course, long... Uh, many instances of police um, that really struggled with the investigation, struggled with uh, interviewing, uh, um, you know, survivors. Mm-hmm. And there was a very big report that uh, that came to the Globe and Mail that talked about how the police, you know, were you know really failing survivors in major ways. So, um, in so many ways, this is predictable, I think. But on the other hand, it's not sufficient. And so, and this is also why social media becomes so effective. Uh, and 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 we do expect the police to do better on this front. That's what I wondered about. I wondered, like, if that that is a typical police response that we may have heard in the past, it might have been heated. But in this day and age, do you think people just aren't going to take that anymore? Well, abs- absolutely not. I mean, I think that's what the social social media is telling us that with the with what women and others are saying on social media that it's not sufficient, and that's just because of how endemic and pervasive it is. You know, so girls, young women, people of, of diverse genders are socialized every day to prevent rape. I mean, how much time stranger rape? How much time is kind of allocated to you know be thinking about being out at night? And we're also told to not go out at night. You know. Don't, you know, don't go out alone. And, you know, right now, Simi, we have a, a very serious instance where women realtors in the city of Vancouver are getting yeah. horrible, horrible, uh, sexually aggressive, threatening phone calls in the course of their work. So, um, you know, this is a serious social problem. And, and you know, and, and, and this is, requires a community response. And right now, the community, the platform that the community has chosen is uh, you know, to kind of push back on some of these narratives or so, even to raise the issue is has the social media. So, Angela, then what would your message be to police and to yes. the community? Well, this is a this is a social problem. So, um, you know, I think that we have to recognize that it's it's very it's it's a huge problem. And so there are organizations that have been established for the purposes of providing support for survivors 
and victims and for education. And so I think that that's one thing is to that, you know, you can check out the websites of WAVA, uh, that's based in, in Metro Vancouver, as well as us, BWSS. Uh, check out our websites for information on sexualized violence. I think that the um, that there is uh, ongoing work that we want to do in terms of funding uh, and resourcing the community-based response, which includes education in schools. Uh, it includes uh, a whole host of of um, of recommendations that have been mm-hmm. you know that have been provided over the years, and then with respect to the police, I, you know, I, <laughs> um, I I think that they need to recognize that that the culture has shifted a little bit, and we have another layer of accountability that's coming for them, which is specifically about how they're responding to uh, sexualized violence in the community. Angela, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thank you, Sumi. Have a good day. That's Angela McDougall, Executive Director at Battered Women's Support Services, responding uh, to all of these rumors going around on social media, stories from women about being followed, being pursued, um, how scared they are. Uh, Coquitlam RCMP originally called those unfounded and told people to stop sharing them, but they got a lot of backlash for that, saying, well, when do you listen then if people feel that they are concerned? So I'm sure we'll be hearing more about that. But I had quite a few people forward me uh, those messages too on the weekend. So there's something going on out there with people wanting to share those stories. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. So here we are talking about snow, right? Where I think a lot of us had our eyes towards spring already. In Victoria, they certainly did. But then came the news that there wasn't going to be a 2021 cruise ship season at all. Now, that's going to have a huge impact in Victoria. Joining us now is Ian Robertson, the CEO of the Greater Victoria Harbour Authority. Ian, thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. This must be very difficult. How big of an impact is this going to have for Victoria? Well, it's going to have a significant impact. Uh, Victoria is Canada's busiest cruise ship port of call. We were to expect over 300 ship calls in just over a five-month period. Uh, Cruise is conservatively estimated at um, well over $130 million each year to the local economy, employs almost 1,000 people. Uh, It's going to be uh, devastating because we're now coming off a 2020 season with no cruise. So, you put the two seasons together with no cruise, it's uh, going to be devastating uh, for this uh, economy. And I understand that even something that as simple as, you know, the Welcome to Victoria flowers out front, the sign there, that's not going to happen this year. No, that's right. That iconic, uh, that iconic picture that everybody takes uh, right in front of the ledge, uh, that is uh, owned by us as an organization. And uh, we're just not able to maintain it. Uh, You know, we're set up as a not-for-profit organization. We're not part of the Canadian Port Authority model. So that means we do not receive any any government funding. So uh, it's upon ourselves to to generate revenue so we can uh, maintain uh, many of the community amenities that Victorians and and visitors uh, love and enjoy. Are businesses just having to retool for 2022? Are they hanging in there? Are you seeing closures? What's happening? Well, it's uh, I, it's too early to tell. From what I can from what I can see, uh, most of the businesses were able to kind of hang on through 2020, and I think look ahead to 2021. But I think there's going to be. Uh, I think we are going to see businesses close uh, as a result of this. That do depend on crews. I talked to many operators, not just the tour operators, but the, the business owners, the shops uh, that, that operate here in Victoria. And they say that 
cruise is the big difference between you know making money or losing money. So uh, I think I think twenty one is going to be another very challenging year, and then you add that on to the fact that you know we don't have any uh, any end in sight in terms of the border reopening. So it's going to be a tough year for for those operators and businesses that rely on tourism in Victoria. Have they been able to pivot and do something else, or is it just a matter of hanging in there? Well, what they've done, a lot of the businesses uh, have relied on the local market. And in Victoria, we've got a, a great sense of community, and everyone is supporting and shopping local. Uh, like I said, though, that, that got them through, you know, perhaps uh, 2020, uh, but it remains to be seen if uh, if 21 will be as strong. I doubt it will be. And I think there's going to be some challenging times ahead for some businesses. I was wondering as well, Ian, like, you know, I think for a long time we thought, oh, it's just a matter of turning a switch back on. Right. Once everything gets back to normal, everything is going to go back to the way it was. And it, increasingly, it looks like that's just not going to happen. No, exactly. I, I, I don't think it's going to be it's going to go back to the way it was. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of changes. And, uh, you know, I've said all along, we've been very grateful uh, for the government program, specifically the uh, Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy or the Q's program. That's in effect till June uh, of 21. I, I'm, I'm going to be appealing loudly uh, to to the federal government to extend that. Uh, that would be good for us as an organization, but it would also be very, very beneficial to the operators. So is there anything that people can do at this point to support Victoria? Like we're not supposed to be traveling right now, but do you think perhaps this summer, is there room for some local tourism? Well, I'm hoping that, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, we may see a, a, a relaxing of the restrictions that we might be able to travel again within British Columbia and get back to a safe six and, Boy, I'll tell you, for uh, anybody listening in Vancouver, uh, Victoria would be uh, would would be more than welcome to see you. It's a, a great getaway. We're one of the uh, top's favorite small cities in in the world, and there's a lot going on here. It's not the old Victoria that people knew it by. So, yeah, I'm hoping that that will happen, and uh, and that we'll have a chance to continue to support local and and uh, welcome people uh, from uh, from other parts of British Columbia. Uh, we'll do what we can when we're allowed to do what we can. Uh, Ian, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Simi. Appreciate that. Ian Robertson is the CEO of the Greater Victoria Harbour Authority. Yeah, they're in tough times with no cruise ship season happening for them in 2021. With that being cancelled, they're not even going to plant the Welcome to Victoria garden that is such a mainstay for visitors. So many people have taken pictures of that over the years, right? That's just iconic. And they said that they don't have the money. They don't have the money to plant it, look after it, or any of that. So they're not even going to do it this year. I think that when you're in the middle of summer and there's no garden like that there, I think people will really notice it. But nothing they can do at this point until the cruise ships or more tourism anyway come back to that city. As you've been hearing in the news, Arctic air is headed our way. We're in for a cold snap this week. It's already starting to hit this morning. You've got snow in the Tri-Cities area. It's making, because of the cold conditions on top of that, for very slippery uh, roads and streets in some parts of the Tri-Cities there. So please be careful if you're driving out that way. In other places, it is sunny and cold and beautiful. But watch out for that. It's a bit of a mixed bag. We'll keep you posted on it. Just keep it tuned in right here. Right now, we are going to talk 
talk about food delivery apps. They seem to be just ubiquitous, right, during the pandemic because you can't leave your house, don't want to go anywhere, so you just have the food delivered to you. But there's been lots of drama involving those apps too because the big companies were told by the BC government, hey, listen, we're going to cap your fees because you seem to be gouging people and you know the restaurants were struggling to make ends meet. And so then what did those companies do? They turned around and put extra BC fees on their bills in a different category. Well, if that really disgusted you and you thought, what are they doing? They're just trying to take money from people on this. There actually is a way around that. Now, Pigeon Restaurant owner Brandon Gersitti launched a local zero commission delivery service last spring. In fact, we talked to him about it when it first launched. So we thought, let's catch up with him now to talk about the success that they have had. Brandon is with us. Good morning, Brandon. Good morning. Thank you for having me on, Timmy. Now, tell me about this app. Um, well, I'll be clear. First off, it's not an app. Right now, it is a website. Uh, we're unable to put it into an app because we are changing so quickly that we don't get through all the kind of Play Store and uh, and App Store approval. So it's a web app for now. Um, but yeah, we started in May, uh, and now we're at 36 restaurants. We have about 90 more that are waiting to get on board and we're, we're trying to get through it as fast as possible. Uh, we charge zero commission uh, to restaurants, just the credit card processing fee at cost for them. Uh, and then we do a driver fee of $6 and 50 cents plus tip, which all go to the driver. So we're trying to rebalance the equation when really everybody needs it really badly and, you know, keeping the money within BC and within the economy as well. Okay. And I forgot to ask you, what's it called? So people know where to look this up. Oh, of course, from 2.ca. From 2.ca. So have you noticed an increase in people wanting to check this out in recent weeks? Yeah, we've we've been doubling our payments to restaurants every week for the last, I would say now, going on nine weeks. Um, it's just kind of really started to push up, especially as, you know, the legislation comes to the forefront. And I think people really are starting to understand the ramifications of their purchasing decisions, like how they, you know, how things affect their local economy. And if we, we keep giving our money to third-party multinational, multi-billion-dollar companies, uh, it really has an effect on the ground. Um, you know, if you don't support properly those those restaurants and those drivers in your community, um, the, you know, those restaurants might not exist. And I, I think it's really uh, people are starting to change their behaviors. I think so too. And do you get? I feel like it comes from this desire to do exactly what you were just talking about. There, people order out because yeah, they want the food, but also because they know this is a way to support local businesses. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I always say, no matter what, even though I am in the delivery business now, um, I always say the best way to be able to support the restaurants uh, is to do takeout. Um, you know, obviously, you know, the first, the second choice is come to from two, but um, you know, it's if you really want to help your local economy and your local restaurant and that mom and pop shop that you want to be there, uh, get out and support. And, uh, you know, unfortunately the, the way with most of the delivery apps is every single time that you order from them, uh, through the multinationals, um, that restaurant is usually losing money on every order. And, uh, even with the cap, um, it's, uh, it's still not quite tenable. And, uh, it's been pretty, pretty frustrating to watch with, uh, you know, the legislation going through and, you know, we had talked to the government very early on in this that the legislation will go through, but they're going to find ways around this. Um, the money's always going to find its way out of BC, and it's always going to find a way where they, you know, change the equation just slightly to, in their favor. And, uh, you know, I think Skip was the only one that was really quite blatant in calling it a BC fee. 
Um, but the other the other apps as well, they have they make sure that their bottom line is covered and they just kind of move the equation around a little bit. I don't think people fully understand that, though, do they, Brandon, right? Because they look at the price and they think, well, that's the price. But what are restaurants getting out of that on those other delivery apps? Well, that's the hard part. I think, you know, and I, I think there's been great awareness over the last, you know, since the pandemic started, just how uh, brutal this is. But prior to uh, the legislation, we were sitting at... Uh, and anywhere between 25 and 35 percent, depending on the platform. Um, so that comes directly out of the restaurant. Um, so that's the first part of the fee. And then you'll have things like fees that go to the customer as well, over and above that 30 percent that they've taken from your order. Um, and then when the legislation fee came, legislation came in, they basically said 15 plus five. Um, and the BC government just, uh, or sorry, all of the delivery apps just said, okay, well it's 20 percent now. Uh, and then added on and chopped on other fees. Um, I, it, it's a very complex, non-transparent model of pricing, and they'll always make it move in their favor. They're not in the business of, uh, of, of basically doing what the government wants. They're always going to find a way around it. So uh, said, we've go ahead. You said you've got ninety restaurants kind of waiting to come on board your app. So what does that involve then? Yeah, so we have an auto onboarding system where restaurants can sign themselves up very easily uh, on from 2.ca. Uh, there's like a restaurant sign-up page. Um, and then from that point on, they can kind of put their hours in, put their products in. And it's like a self-serve kind of system. Uh, and it makes it pretty easy because we're a small company uh, to get people up and ready. And when they're when they're ready to go, uh, we take a look and then we launch them on. Um, the biggest thing that we're trying to manage is making sure that we it's a very... Um, uh, a sensitive game between enough drivers, enough restaurants, uh, the radius in which we deliver uh, to make sure that everybody does well, that the restaurants do well and we do a good job by them to the customers of making sure that the food is hot and gets there fast and making sure that our drivers make enough money. And, and I think those things are always complicated. You could onboard everyone, but parts of that three-legged stool are going to start to fall apart. So we're, we're trying to be smart and, and uh, intelligent about our growth. And how has it been finding people to be drivers? That part has been amazing. Um, I think I think a lot of drivers that like the drivers that are out there in the networks right now, um, like we have a combination of people that are out of work in hospitality that have been driving for us, and we have other people in which or underemployed, which is kind of the more uh, the, the bigger number these days. Uh, and then we have drivers of an ilk that kind of work in the other platforms, but honestly don't like working with those platforms. And then they understand what they're doing with the economy, and they understand that. Um, in some ways, they're hurting restaurants. Now, people need to make a living. Um, and those that come over to our platform seem to really understand that and, uh, and want to support us in our growth. All right. Well, hopefully it goes well. We'll check back in with you in a little while. Brandon, thank you. Thank you, Simi. Good luck. That's Brandon Grassetti, who's the owner of Pigeon Restaurant in Gastown and founder of the From To Delivery app. That is from to.ca. It is a, you know, delivery uh, website without having that big overhead that you have to deal with, with like Uber Eats, Skip the Dishes and all that other kind of stuff. It's a local version of that with a much different kind of economic picture. You can check it out online, see if they deliver in your neighborhood.